everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back. Um, we got a, another little twist of an episode for you today. Um, we are getting into the realm of what's going on inside your brain and how you're managing yourself and your teams. Not so much the practice of medicine, but maybe we can say the, the things that allow you to practice medicine effectively. Um, we have with us Dan Dworkis, who's a ER physician. Um, he's an assistant professor of emergency medicine down at Keck at USC, but he also runs the Emergency Mind Project, has his own podcast, and um, is the medical director for the, the Mission Critical Team Institute and really does a lot of work looking at kind of how we, how we manage our, ourselves and our, our groups to provide effective stress management and kind of manage the, let's say, the, the human side of our decision-making and our resuscitations. So Brian's going to help us kind of get his perspective on, on the things that he talks and thinks about quite a lot and, and you know, kind of intersection of it with emergency medicine or, in our case, critical care, which I, I feel like has not given as much attention to these topics as we probably should have in the past. But Brian, you want to help us out here? Yeah. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. We're gonna Happy to be here. Out, uh, we're going to start out with, with doing a case. Um, I am going to set you upstairs for this case. So, out of the uh, somewhat chaotic world of the emergency department and into the somewhat chaotic world of the ICU. Um, and in this case, actually, we're going to leave the ICU as well. So, um, but for this scenario, you're, you're covering the ICU and you're at a, um, decent sized academic hospital, but you know, you're the attending in the ICU tonight and, um, you come in at say 6 PM, right. And kind of get signed out from the day team and everything's pretty chill. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a, a decent night. You kind of go around and check people out and everything seems okay. And so you're, you're sitting down to the important topics of, you know, what are we going to order for dinner and things like that. Uh, when the code pager goes off and you're called to the floor. And so you go to the floor to run the code. First of all, what are your first thoughts? And, and like Brandon said, we, we're going to, by necessity, talk a little bit of medicine, but mostly we're going to talk about sort of the non-clinical stuff that's involved in these types of situations and scenarios. What are your thoughts when you're you're called to a code? That's all you know. Yeah. So first off, again, thanks you all for having me. I'm like super psyched to talk about this and to to jump into these topics with you all. And I love what you guys are putting together for this. Um, you know, right away, I'll say I'm, I'm, I'm an ER doctor, not an ICU doctor. So I have a sort of a different spin on a lot of this stuff. And if we're starting a case where I'm upstairs, then we're going to start with me being a little bit lost, a little bit on my back foot and a little bit off balance, which is like, you know, a fairly natural place for an ER doctor to be, uh, to be off balance like that. And I think that actually adds a lot into it. Um, which is worth saying at the beginning, because the systems and tools and work that you design when you're able to optimize and control your environment are different in a lot of ways than the things when you're performing outside your normal space, right? So if we're talking about being upstairs or if we're talking about leaving our ICU to go to a code, we're already working on a different set of things. And I hope that's what we're going to get into a little bit of it. Um, you talked about 
uh, you know, like what are some of the first things I think of when I, when a code pager goes off, right? There's usually like that moment of like, <laughs> all right, like here we go, right? Some sort of internal like moment of chaos and panic, hopefully followed pretty quickly by a series of protocols to turn that panic into like a, let's go, let's get after it. And some excitement as you run towards it. Um, but one of the tensions, one of the things that's worth talking about on a couple of levels for all of this, anytime we're talking about running a code is like the internal stuff that's going on for me and then the stuff that's going on in my team and who's going to be around me and what are we going to do? Um, so uh, just to lay some groundwork for that, right? Like we think about sort of two very different types of teams that behave and function very differently. Um, one is an intact team and the other is a swarm team. Let's lay some foundation there because I think that's a really important thing to, to conceive of as we go in and out of the ER, the ICU, and the floor for codes. So an intact team, the model there is uh, like a sports team, like a baseball team, right? These are folks that have been selected for this purpose. Uh, they go through training together. They train in the off-season together. They, they get to know each other. They go to barbecues together. Um, and they know uh, the ins and outs of each other's personalities and performance, right? Uh, Brandon, if you and I are on a baseball team together, you probably know, geez, if Dan starts like moving in this one way, that means he's under stress a little bit because we've had time and practice to do that. We know what our role is. We know what our game is. We know what our environment is. And we exist uh, longitudinally over time together. Right? We have chances to train and work together. The opposite of an intact team, or another really important concept to think about, is this idea of a swarm team. Right? Swarm teams are ad hoc responses to a problem set. These are people that converge together from somewhere in the ether. They each have their own training. They each have their own background, their own skill sets. And they converge together on a problem set to try to solve it. They self-assemble a way to, to get through some sort of a situation they do it, they either succeed or they fail or something happens. And then usually they disperse back into the ether and they might never know each other's names. They might have no idea what's happening. They certainly don't go to barbecues together unless it's accidentally. Uh, I, don't, I didn't realize barbecue was going to be a theme of this conversation, but we keep going somehow. I'll try to work that in. Uh, and there's a lot of real differences in how those two things work. Right? And as we're drifting in and out of different parts of the hospital, we might, over the course of a day, function partly on an intact team and partly on a swarm team. The way that we communicate, the way that we assume and disperse responsibility, uh, the way that we lead, the way that we practice medicine is very different in those environments. Most of the time, we completely ignore that and pretend that everything we do in medicine is exactly the same, whether we're on an intact team or a swarm team. Right? So when you're describing that situation of me leaving the ICU to go to a code on the floor, we're really crossing that invisible barrier. Right? And that's one of the things I definitely think about as I'm walking towards that situation, which is who's going to be in that room with me? Am I taking a code response team with me? Right? Like when I was in residency, we had a, you know, the ER had a code response team and you would take a doctor, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, and a pharmacist, and a, you used to call it the chuck wagon, right? Like a, a tr like a gurney full of gear with you. So you brought a quasi intact team with you. A lot of the other hospitals I've worked at, when you respond to a code, you, you are you might have been in a part of the hospital you've never been in before, especially as an ER doctor. You have no idea what's happening. So you're walking into a swarm team situation. Do you think it's reasonable to even consider if you were in your own department that you're working in an intact team just because we have kind of semi-stable staff on most days? And, you know, even if you have your own personnel, it's not like you've trained that particular group of people, you know, ad nauseum. It's kind of a rotating cast. This is such a great point. So part, with the Mission Critical Team Institute, we're sort of um, 
developing this idea, which we're very loosely calling a jello team uh, to sort of like, to, I guess I'm hungry this morning. I don't know what the deal is, but uh, to, to sort of mirror what you're describing, which is that a lot of medical teams have features that are like intact teams and have features that are like swarm teams or liquid teams, right? I guess that's where jello comes from. You got solid liquid and you know we're somewhere in the middle of this jello team. So there are situations where you might have repeated contacts with the same group around individual problem sets. Okay, well, some of that's like a solid team because you get repeated contact with the same people. You and I might be co-attendings and, and we are signing out to each other, you know, every day for a week. Okay, well, there's some there's some give and play in there and we can get to learn a little bit from each other and feedback to each other. Um, but we might have a rotating cast of residents working with us. Uh, and we might not know them. And so there's there's features that sort of swap in and out like that. And the strength of those weak connections is really crucial for how you do this, right? The, the more clued in you are to your hospital and to the system that you work, the more you know the people on the different floors, the more you've seen each other in the hallways and talked to each other, the better relations you have, the better teams work, right? That's, that's why we don't expect like, you know, baseball teams to come together at, at some random point in time and fully function together as a world champion baseball team, right? We, we don't think that works like that. But we do think medicine is supposed to be able to perform like that. And the question is, well, if we believe that, like we need code blue response teams, right? We can't have a standing team like that. That's just not the way resources work. So if we have to perform under pressure at this exact moment in a swarm team situation for something that is as serious as the life or death of a code blue situation, how do we do it? How do we train people for that? How do we get that ready? How do we practice that? How do we practice the skill of being a member or a leader of a swarm team? How do we swarm and then effectively de-swarm or sort of disperse and bring that learning back to the different areas? That like wakes me up in the morning sometimes thinking about that. Like I'm so fascinated by that problem. Interesting. Well, so you you get to the floor and you find the code is in progress, right? The nursing staff has already initiated ACLS, rapid response is there. Um, you don't know a whole lot about the patient. You kind of come in and what's going on? Tell me what's what's up. And uh, the nurse who says, why was his nurse today? Because, by the way, it's nursing shift change right now. Uh, You've been here for an hour, but now it's shift change. So you got more people, but you've got the night shift and the day shift, which for folks who don't work with nurses a lot may not understand this, that night shift nurses and day shift nurses really don't ever work together. They They may not even really know each other because they see each other for 20 minutes a day when they do handoff. Uh, but yeah, so you have these, all these groups together. The day shift nurse says, this is a 75 year old guy who, uh, presented to an outside emergency department. EMS brought him in because his family reported that he was, uh, altered and, um, uh, some shortness of breath, sort of vague symptoms. The ED, the outside ED reports that EMS told them he was having quote seizure like activity and he got some Ativan. Uh, and then they ultimately diagnosed him with probably pneumonia. Uh, but because of the seizure activity, they wanted to send him on to your hospital because they didn't have any in-house neurology. So neurology is available, but he's just admitted to hospital medicine for pneumonia and neurology is consulting him for seizures. So that's the story you, you get on this guy. The intern from hospital medicine is there who says, uh, all I know is... This guy shows up. He looks okay. I haven't seen any evidence of seizures. And he just went PEA. 
ACLS is in progress. And one of the great things about ACLS is the code kind of runs itself, right? Let's you have some time to start thinking about things while, without having to direct, you know, micromanagement things. So what are you thinking about now while, while people are handling the algorithms of ACLS? So, okay. So, so I run into the room and the, the first thing is I, I'm going to do a lot of stuff and I'm going to think through a lot of stuff before I ever figure out who this person is or what their story is. So a lot of things, stuff is going to happen before I know that it's a 75 year old man who comes from another hospital because at the beginning, I honestly don't care, right? My, like none of that's actually relevant for me in terms of what I'm doing at the very beginning. And I will often stop people who try to explain the case to me, except to ask, is this person DNR, DNI, right? Which having coded and criked people to later find out they are DNR, DNI, you know, like you do the best you can with the information you have, but I, I like to avoid that whenever we can. So let's assume this guy is full code, right? But other than that one fact of information, the first thing I'm going to ask when I walk into a room is I'm going to, I'm going to announce who I am, right? I'm going to come in and say, I am usually I'd say I am ER, but let's pretend I am ICU or whatever we want to play with, right? I am ER, not my name. Cause that's irrelevant. I am ER who's in charge. And usually what's going to happen is nobody's going to say anything because usually nobody's in charge in one of these circumstances, unless you happen to be running a code in an ICU, in an ER, sometimes in an OR or places where we're used to doing this kind of work. But generally speaking, nobody is in charge and you're just sort of like building the ship as you're, you know, flying it or whatever the analogy is there. So you're going to run in and say, Hey, I'm ER. Who's in charge? Nobody says anything. Okay. I am in charge, right? Uh, what like our pads on? Do we have IV access? All right. What's the last rhythm? You're up for CPR. Who's right behind you? And I'm going to do all of this stuff right at the beginning. I'm just going to block and tackle the absolute basics, right? If you can't put pads on, you can't do most of ACLS. If you don't have IVs in, most of it, the medicines I'm going to give are irrelevant, right? If I don't have some way to get oxygen into the person, none of my sophisticated thinking about pneumonia is going to do anything for this person whatsoever. So I'm really just concentrating on absolute basics right at the beginning. I am in charge. I want pads on this person. I want an IV on them. And I think that some of the reason that we think through that stuff, um, it, coming from an ER background, is that we don't usually get stories on people, right? Having a story, having background is luxury. Uh, sometimes it's like important luxury. Sometimes it's completely irrelevant. Sometimes it's actually antithetical to what we're doing because it's it's a, a trick, right? But really what I want to do is make sure I'm able to deliver the care that I can right at the beginning. So organizing that team around our first key priorities, pads on, is there IV access? Are we giving oxygen to this person? Way, way, way more important than understanding what this man's story is at the beginning. If somebody is in charge, right? Like if that intern steps up and says, I am leading the code, you know, great. Then you're in a position where you're like, wonderful. Are you going to stay in charge or am I taking over? And that conversation goes fairly quickly also. And usually you can sort of assess pretty, pretty rapidly if this person feels comfortable and feels like they're running it or if they need your support for it. But that question usually just goes some version of, you know, wonderful. I am emergency. How can I help you? And if they give you a very competent answer, like I'm running a PEA uh, algorithm, we're two rounds in, we have IV access, I need you on airway. Copy that, move into airway. Great, I'm going airway. Uh, if they're like, I don't know what's happening, you know, this guy is just coding. Great, I am now in charge. I want you over here putting an IV in. All right, here's what I need, right? And you're just sort of blocking and tackling the basics of the room like that. Um, I know that didn't exactly answer your question of what I'm thinking at the beginning, but all of that's going to happen right before we get into any of this, like what's actually going on with this guy. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't matter at the start. You, you got to be able to deliver your skill. 
I'm interested that you specifically are not using your name because I feel like when a lot of people talk about um, you know good team dynamics, they talk about kind of using people's names to identify each other, um, and it sounds like that is um, kind of not what you're interested in. So, do you think that it is helpful to be able to name people so you can sort of uh, specifically you know ask and answer questions or or give orders and and close those loops, or you find that people just don't don't hear the names and don't use them. I, I am uh, I am terrible with names. I'm just personally terrible with them. So in an ideal environment, right, and this gets a little bit back to this idea of intact teams versus swarm teams, right? In an ideal environment, even if we haven't, uh, even if we're coming into an emergent problem set, we've we know each other, we've trained together a little bit before, and you can you know who I am, I can come in and introduce myself. Hey, I'm Dan, I'm the ER doctor, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I understand you're, you're Brandon, you have this and you're Brian, you have this, but if we're in a really high stakes, high stress scenario, what are the chances that I'm going to say Brandon and Brian correctly for you guys? If it's the first time that we've ever met together, right. It's just unlikely to happen. But if I know Brandon, you are airway and Brian, you are like rhythm and IV, Okay, cool. Then I can sort of block and tackle that a little bit. And I might start a question with like, you know, airway operator, do we have a tube in? Yes or no? And we have that sort of like baseline stuff. A lot of this is about, you know, there's this really like really key idea about um, when you're starting from zero to a code, like, especially if you're first responding, uh, like I, I don't know, I, I, we can talk about this or not, but I, I ran a code in a supercuts one time when I was a resident. I was just walking by and I happened to be the first responder into it. And so, like, you, you run codes in supercuts, you run codes in bathrooms, like you do all this weird stuff as an ER doctor. And and it, it's wonderful to be able to to walk into a code in progress where there's already stuff going like this. But you learn very quickly that if you don't get the basics done, all of your learning and skill, you can't actually deliver it to that patient. You don't have pads on. None of the stuff we train about rhythm or delivering shocks or not delivering shocks is relevant, right? If you don't have IV access in, none of the rest of the stuff matters in terms of what drugs you're giving. So, okay, yeah, I would love for you to know my name and everything about me, but at the end of the day, what you really need to know is ER doctors there, airway dudes there, and then we can build on top of that, right? We can keep going as we get deeper into the code if we need to. Um, and, and I hope we talk about this at some point, but there's a ton of stuff that happens after the code is over to build these relationships after we've gone through this really intense experience together so that we play better tomorrow than we did today. Um, but the first time I'm walking into a situation, you know, I don't care if you know what my name is. I'm, I'm just the ER dude. It doesn't matter. They, they really enforced this by the way, when we were, um, when I was uh, in residency and I was rotating in the ICU, uh, this is, this was sort of a joke. I'll say that, but they had the whole team roster up on the wall, all the medicine doctors with where they'd gone to, you know, medical school and everything. Uh, and then they just had a faceless picture of a human and it said ER doctor one on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, my, my addition to this process, uh, this is, this is at mass general. My addition to this, uh, this process was drawing a small smiley face on that, on that faceless person. Um, that's my contribution to the team that day. Well, I'm glad to see you've leaned into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, some some uh, uh, groups have kind of managed their codes, and I guess this issue by maybe almost having a couple different leaders. Like you maybe have a higher level kind of leader looking at the big picture like yourself and maybe more of a sort of middle manager type who can parse out the things you want to the right people. And, you know, maybe a, a nurse or a nurse leader who 
does know people's names or, or at least knows what people are good at. Cause you know, people teach this in ACLS and stuff and they say, well, you should, you know, you tell a specific person what to do. And then in reality, you don't know who can actually do any of those things. So unless you know your team, like you said, but maybe, you know, you could have a, a, a second in command who can kind of interpret what you want. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I love that idea. I have not personally worked in a place where there are nursing-led codes like that, um, but I love the idea. I've seen some really good results in the data from that. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that would be amazing in a lot of ways to have translators and to have folks that really understand the details of the situation and the uh, abilities of that of that team and that group. Um, when I was working as a, a, a locum provider for a while, I would sometimes run a code in a hospital where I really knew basically nobody. Uh, and so you'd often bring with you to that situation, uh, you know, a charge nurse from the ER or um, honestly, even a scribe that had worked there for a long time that knew the people, that knew the environment, that knew the everything. And that could act as a translator for you in terms of what are the resources you have available? What are the things that you can and can't do here? What do you need to know about the situation that, that helps you map these sort of broad abstract topics of how to run a code onto the reality of how you can do it in this one situation? We were talking about this the other day. I find that one of the one of the challenges that's becoming more and more common in this new environment is we're having a lot of turnover of nursing and we're having a lot of, we see a lot of travelers uh, being used. And one of the things that is a challenge that I didn't even think of until the other day is when you have a bunch of travelers, you have people who may be very experienced, but they've not worked together. And they've maybe not even worked in the same place or even the same state before. And just a little challenge I found is when you ask for something, does everybody speak the same language, right? If, if I say, can someone get me an angiocath and I have a nurse who's never heard it called that before because they're used to calling it a Jelco or whatever, you know, there's just different terminology for things. Um, and it becomes almost like a tower of Babel situation, right? Where everybody knows what to do, but nobody speaks the same language. How do you handle when that comes up? Because even without that throwing the travelers mix into things, even just coming up from the ED to the ICU or the ICU to the floor, there's certain things that, you know, I have knowledge of, and my team in the ICU has knowledge of that, the ER never deals with or the floor never deals with. And so when I say, get me such and such, they don't know what I'm talking about. There, there's so many layers to what you just said, right? There's the, the specific detail of how do you call a thing, right? And then there's all the layers of how do we, how are we used to communicating, right? What language am I speaking? What language are you speaking? How do I, how am I expecting to pass and receive information? And how am I expecting you to pass or receive information to me? Right. There's like so much to get into there because really what we're talking about is like cross-cultural high-performance communication, right? To, to put a name around that. Because if you're coming from one area and I'm some other person, we need to know how to talk to each other. This is a really stupid example of that. But like when you all are rounding, how do you call out the vital signs? A lot of times when you ask folks that question, there's an answer to that, which is what is the expected way to receive and say vital signs, right? Like, do you say blood pressure before heart rate or after heart rate? 
is temperature in the middle? I mean, you certainly wouldn't say systolic is 120, the temperature is 39.4, the diastolic is 86. Like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Why would you do that? Right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Why does it not make sense? It doesn't make sense because we've created a system that allows us to, with as little friction as possible, pass crucial information back and forth across cultural divides. Right? That culture might be night shift, day shift nursing. Maybe it's intensivist ER doctor, right? Maybe it's you know, cardiothoracic surgeon, cath lab operator, whatever it is, right? Like we've created these systems that allow us to do it. And one of the fundamental things you do in training is you learn those systems. You learn because as a medical student, one day you're like, the diastolic pressure is 80. You know, the heart rate is not, and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? No, 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 we do it this way. But if you don't know those things, it's easy when you know them, right? It's easy when you're like, this is how we'd say vital signs to each other. It's a lot harder when we run into things like what you're describing, which is, I don't even know what I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know what you call this thing because I've never had to think about it before. It's just always what I called it, right? It's a Zoll. Well, actually, no, it's a, you know, it's a defib monitor. Oh, well, we used to call it a Zoll. Okay, well, why? I don't know, right? Like you just sort of like get into these places and you absorb this knowledge that you're not really sure how it happens. Sometimes that comes out in the middle of a high stakes scenario like this and you sort of have to work your way around it. Right. So that's when a lot of the closed loop communication and, and check back and copy back is really important about that. I, ideally, how do we do this? Uh, well, we do cross disciplinary training ahead of time. Right. The ideal thing is that six weeks before I'm running in to treat this 75 year old man with maybe pneumonia or a head bleed or a seizure or whatever this dude has, right? Six weeks ago, we all got together and ran a mock one on the floor. And we did it because we wanted to sort of learn each other's faces and who we are, and we want to know what's expected, what should happen, how should, how should control be transitioned, what should be at the bedside, where is backup equipment, how do we call for backup equipment, what if we need something else. I worked in a uh, very small hospital that I won't, um, I won't name at the moment, but I had to crike somebody there, and we opened the crike kit, and it turns out that it was uh, just a pair of Kellys. Um, that just said crike kit, which is obviously not anything like, you know, insufficient to actually crike this person or to have any of the tools in there. But we didn't realize it until I'd already opened it and I'd already cut part of the person's neck open. And that's like the wrong time to realize what's in the crike kit, right? You always want to like figure this stuff out ahead of time, which gets, I think, Brian, to your point of like, how do you communicate these issues? Well, the best time to figure out is to run it under a lower stakes, lower wedge environment. Um, and fail early before you're failing on top of a person. Yeah, I, I read something not too long ago talking about, and so I do a lot of simulation training with our um, APP fellows and with nursing uh, nurse practitioner students. And I was reading something that was talking kind of like this, that, that, you know, that one of the benefits of high fidelity training, besides the benefit to your actual learners, is the more high fidelity you do, the more you realize things like that, right? Like the mm -hmm. author of this paper was saying, uh, I guess they had run a, a scenario in their in their ER, I think it was, uh, and they realized as they were running through this this simulation scenario, nobody knew where X piece of equipment was, uh, and they're like, okay, well we got to fix that, right? Yeah. But you also might run into things like, yeah, we opened the crate kit and it was just a note that said stuff should be here, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know we got to get a better crate kit. Um, because it's those things that you don't, you know, you're not, you're not cracking people every day. So who knows what's right. in that bag, right? 
Right. And, and I think that gets to like building a culture of evolution and excellence, right? Like the idea that you can either approach that problem set of how do we, how do we run into friction ahead of time? Uh, that can either be a negative or a positive for your team, right? If it's a negative, then it's like, oh God, we have to do this nonsense again. Like, you know, here's, here's, you know, Brian, Brandon, and Dan wanting us to like take more time to run another sim, but we've got work to do and blah, blah, blah. Or how does it become a culture where you're like, yeah, we're really excited about the fact that we found a breaking point and fixed it before it happened in the middle of a real code, right? Like how cool is that, that we figured this out before anybody got hurt on it? Like, that's amazing, right? That's a huge victory that, that really should be celebrated that you guys figured this out uh, because we didn't have to, like, that is cheap learning, right? Nobody had to suffer for us to figure that out. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to do. And the more... Like you said, the more turnover and change of staff, the more uh, challenging that is because you don't have longitudinal time in your team to figure that out. Um, I don't know what the right answer for that is. I, I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm really curious about what it would take to design better onboarding techniques uh, as people are coming in to get them a sense of sort of how to do this. And how do we you know, who should be in charge of that knowledge? Who should be in charge of teaching that knowledge? Is it part of your uh, shadowing that you do a code sim right at the beginning? Um, if it's not, how do we expect you to actually function when you're really doing it? Mm -hmm. um, how should we be teaching people those individual skills, right? And then, and then separate from that, sort of like, how do we learn to actually do a skill in the middle of a code versus the theoretical, the theoretical version of that skill. And it, the, the thing I use for this a lot is like asking um, residents who are rotating with me uh, when they're an intern, or especially if they're an off-service ro rotator, um, do they know how to set up suction? Yes, of course. Of course I know how to set up suction. Okay, set up this suction. Uh, what? <laughs> right? It just sort of like fumbles in your hands. Like it's so hard to do if you've never done it before. It's not intuitive, blah, blah, blah. But the difference between I know how to do this in theory, and I have done this once to understand what it feels like, and I see the way the pieces come together, is to me a, a very similar instance to what you're describing of like getting the team together to work on these, these problem sets. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned how to set up suction, right? So when I was uh, years ago, when I was a nurse in the emergency department, um, one of our senior residents, I guess he was a junior resident at the time, but you know, what a very experienced, um, mm -hmm. great guy. He was on an off service rotation and he comes into the ER one night, finds me and he says, show me how to set up a Pluravac. Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And he was like, I have to put a chest tube in on a patient on the floor and it's a floor where they don't do this very often. Nobody knows how to set up a Pluravac. And I find myself saying, I don't know. I mean, it just happens when I put a chest tube in, in the ED, there's just a pluravac there because my team knows how to do this. Um, and so it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that's mm -hmm. something that we run into when we we're outside of our normal environment is expecting people to know what we assume our team knows. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens after that, right? Like, do you, do you go to the floor and teach them how to set up pluravac? Is that important? Who, who owns that knowledge? What's your culture? And one of the things that that bumps into so much is like, do we see ourselves as members of the same family or are we completely different people? Right? Like, like, okay, so you have this situation where you're going to, you have a situation where you can work with this other group to set up a pluravac, but if you go up there, are you welcomed? 
Mm-hmm. Are they like, oh, so cool, an opportunity to learn something. This is great. Let's talk to our cousins who work downstairs. Or is it like, yo, man, F off. Like, <laughs> we don't want you up here. Which is unfortunately a lot of what the culture in, in medicine is. It's a lot of fiefdoms, a lot of like little things like that. Um, I realize we're drifting a little bit here from how to run a code or running a code. But, but I think that this culture of wanting to improve, wanting to learn, and being open to the viewpoints and experiences of everybody on the team and making it a point to be like, this is who we are. We get better. That is our core culture. We get better. Like that's so important and, and really sets the stage for how to run a code. Well, we'll get back to the code here in a second, but I want to talk a little bit more about what you just said about the fiefdoms and, you know, so how do we as individual providers, right? I'm not the vice president of anything and we're in charge of this or that, how do I make a difference? I mean, you know, certainly, like I said, I spend a lot of time in the neuro ICU. And so mm-hmm. it's a pretty small world, right? I know all the neurology residents very well. I know all the neurosurgery residents very well. I know some of the neurofloor nurses. We interact with them certainly more than I would with, you know, random staff on another floor if I was uh, responding to a sure. general code. But still, you know, I'm not in charge of things. How do you as a provider approach a situation like that where you go, I'm afraid that there's deficient knowledge here and I don't want to be perceived as coming in and saying like, I'm from the ICU and I know everything. Let me fix your problem. And I first heard this concept from uh, Dr. Shannon McNamara, who's another really wonderful ER doctor. Uh, And she used to call it, she called it the starling effect. Right, which is if you look at how flocks, or technically they're called murmurations, right? Flocks of starlings move. Right, they're these groups of birds that do this amazing pivoting pattern, and they're so beautiful. And it's like, you know, how do they all talk to each other? Well, when folks actually study it, it it looks like they actually obey very specific rules, which is essentially um, try to fly in the same direction as everybody near you, and try to stay roughly equidistant from the six closest birds to you. That's kind of it, right? And, and if you do that, then the whole flock can actually change shape pretty quickly if you just obey those rules. So aside from that just being like really freaking cool, like what does that have to do with us and this problem set that we're describing? Which is that like you might not be the vice president of anything, but when you subtly change direction and nudge the six people around you, that actually can produce enormous ripples through the culture and the function of your organization. Right? And you have to view it that way. You have to think to yourself, what am I going to do on this shift to be better? How am I going to help my team get better, the six people around me? How am I going to do that in a way that creates ripples that steers our entire organization? And you don't have to be the vice president of anything to do that. You just have to change your own personal behavior and nudge the folks around you to make it slightly better. Hmm. Right? Okay, so, so functionally, like, what does that look like? Right? Well, if we're talking about building a culture, and let's just focus again on this culture of learning, because there's also there's cultures of excellence, there's cultures of like there's all sorts of stuff to talk about, but just cultures of learning, where we decide we want to learn from everybody around us, right? Because we want to be the group that if somebody else has a pluravac, they need to teach us how to set up. We welcome them with open arms. Why do we do that? Because we believe over time that having a culture of adaptability, learning, and evolution will make us better at caring for our patients, especially in these high-stress, high-stakes moments like codes where everything is haywire and you need to pivot very quickly. Okay, we believe this is important. It links to patient outcomes. It links to patient safety. Awesome. You know, like, great, we want to do this. How? 
right? Well, the first answer is like, what are really small things that you can do that cost basically nothing that you can start doing immediately to nudge yourself in this direction, right? And so I usually think about this as the 1% challenge. What could you do on this shift to get you and your team 1% better at that goal that cost you less than $5? It's less than $5 because I usually have $5 somewhere in my backpack, right? Late night coffee, super important. Okay. So if you really think about that, like if you really break that system down with your group on this next shift, you're probably going to come up with something really cool. Just a couple random ideas. Well, if we want to think about learning across culture, well, what about every time if we take handoff from a group on the floor, what if we ask them what they learned from that patient? Man, like that, like what surprised you about this case? If you were the head of the hospital, what would you wish had happened differently here? Do you think that there's anything that we could do better for this case? What are you going to go back and study? What challenged you? And and if you focus on those things, like what surprised you? What did you learn? And you make that part of the normal culture that subtly changes things that happen over time. Because all of a sudden, you're not just this person who's like yelling at each other on the phone. You're actually being like, hey, I want to be better at my job. I'd love your advice. How could I do this better? What do you think we can change? Like, do you have to do everything they say? No, absolutely not. Right. But you're creating an open pathway of communication about growth and evolution that can feed forward and feed back. Um, I think that is an absolutely outrageously powerful idea. So, so I've started doing this when I, when I take, um, when I take a sign out from another attending right at the end of a shift, um, you know, people want to go home. Like ER, you know, is like one of the things people love about it is like when you're off, you're off. And so people like want to get out of the hospital, which I totally understand. Um, but I take everybody's patience and then I, I try to ask my, uh, my teammate, whoever, whatever the other attending is, I'm taking over for some version of what did you learn today or what surprised you today? Like, was it a systems thing? Was it a medical care thing? Like, how did you get better today? Because I, I want to create that little starling effect in the group around me. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that would work for your teams? I think it's something that we'd have to be, you'd have to be very intentional about, right? Because like mm -hmm. you said, everybody wants to go home. Everybody wants to leave. Even just regular interactions. Like I'm thinking of, you know, when I work with a consulting team or, um, you know, somebody consults me, I just don't even think to ask those questions. Yeah. Why, why not? Yeah, I don't know. Right? Like, well, part of the answer is like, we weren't, none of us were brought up that way, right? We were brought up in a way where, like, I have the knowledge, you don't have the knowledge, like, shut up and do what I say. Like, one of my first experiences in an intensive care unit, I was, a, I was an intern or something. And th this guy comes in and, and it's like three in the morning and he's rounding and he turns, he turns and goes, you know, who the hell is taking care of patient whatever? And I'm like, I am, sir, I'm the intern. What can I do for you? And he goes, yeah, you've completely mismanaged his, you know, whatever problem, uh, you know, and it just starts screaming at me, like, what's wrong with me? What could I, like, how could I possibly be so idiotic? And he stops and he goes, do you know who I am? And of course I had no idea who he was. It turns out, of course, he had like invented the thing that he was talking about and was like the absolute world's expert in this. And everybody else was like shocked that I would be even speaking to this gentleman. And, and I was like, no, do you know who I am? And it, he, he wandered off and had no idea who I was, of course. But like this was the way the interactions were, right? This is how a resident would be spoken to by an attending who was the inventor of this thing. 
oh my God, what a lost opportunity, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This man had vented this thing. We could have had a great conversation about it. He could have taught me so much that I could be using for my patients today. And we could have been telling this story in a way of warmth and passion and growth. We're like, wow, this pioneer in the field took the time to talk to me, a lowly intern about something. But no, that's, that's not what happened, right? And when you create these situations, like the flock's going to go in one way or another, Right? You're already making choices about how you're steering your team. And if, you're, if that's normal, if you're accepting normal as yelling at each other and creating friction, you know, a, a predictable result is going to happen from that, which is that like, we're not going to get better at these types of things. Right? And then you have somebody who's a local champion and man, they want to do better and they get burnt out because there's just like friction all around them. But these little tiny micro choices, and man, what better place to make micro choices than, than the ICU? right? Champions of accumulation of marginal gains, right? This is like such, like you all are so good at this. You're so good at this. So what would it take to make a tiny little marginal change in the way that you talk to each other about this thing? I don't know. Probably doesn't cost that much, probably less than $5. I don't know what'll happen if that happens. I have no idea. I've never seen an ICU that works like that, but I'd love to see it. I I do think that's that sense of curiosity and, um, sort of uh, joy about evolution and growth is something that I do see in a lot of really high-performing teams, right? They love that stuff. They love getting better. Like, how cool is that that you get to get better? We'll sort of skip ahead because, like I said, I don't want to get bogged down in the ACLS and the medicine, but we've done multiple rounds of ACLS. Things are not going well. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're starting to think about when to stop. Yeah. And uh, one of the nurses grabs you and says, uh, family's here. Do you want to talk to the family? So do you, I, well, I'll just ask, I guess I don't want to assume, do you want to talk to the family? Um, and how do you approach that? I feel like as an ER doctor, this is something mm-hmm. that you guys are extremely good at that mm-hmm. we can learn from is how do you develop sort of instant rapport with people and have serious conversations, right? Because you, you never know people for very right. long in the ER. We have the luxury sometimes of getting to know families and stuff over long stays, but how do you how do you develop that sort of instant rapport and have that conversation? Yeah, that's a that is a really hard part of of what we do, right? Those are really challenging situations and and you know, especially if you're multi rounds deep into this code, you know, bad things are on the horizon for this person and their family. And I think understanding the gravity of that situation is is really in, really crucial. It's also you realize that you know we don't know what's going to happen with this man. We might not be able to to get him back. But whatever we do here is going to echo through this person's family, and often through like the way they talk to each other, maybe through generations of this person's family. Right. You know, I, I hear, I grew up hearing stories about what this one doctor said when, you know, my so-and-so relative was having a cardiac arrest in the hospital and that got passed down to this family, to this family and got passed down to me as a kid, right? This stuff echoes through time and space. So you really want to be intentional about it and you want to bring, uh, whatever, whatever peace you can to this family, no matter what's going to happen next. Um, this is always even harder when you're doing this in other languages, right? Because the nuance of language here is incredibly important. Um, so I would 100% advocate for uh, an inter- person interpreter to be part of this conversation if you have if if you have the ability to do that. Phone interpreter if you can't, and 
you know, some days we don't get what we want, so you, you do the best you can with what you have. Um, but I always want to bring the family. Uh, I always want to talk to the family. I always want to talk to them usually for a second. Um, and then give every family the option to be in the room as we're as we're working on their family member. I think that's very important. Most people want to see that, at least to see some of it. Not everybody does, so I don't automatically bring them into the room. Um, but I want to I want to pause right outside the room for a second and give some space and time to make sure, uh, even if it's a second or two, um, to, to decide if they want to be involved in this or not. Um, if in terms of the question of do I go myself or do I send somebody, it sort of depends on the situation, right? If I have a really, really upper tier resident that I'm working with um, and things are quasi steady state in the code, we might discuss briefly, does that person, you know, does does she or he want to go talk to the other family or do they want to stay and run the code and I'll go talk to the family? Um, if I'm alone, uh, then I will, you know, it up so that my staff knows that we're going to run the same protocol for the next uh, minute. And I'm literally going to like put one foot outside the door and talk to the family and, and stay in those two worlds together. How do you actually talk to the, to the family? You know, and the, the humanity of that moment is so big, right? The humanity of that moment is just, just so big. Um, if we're not actively coding the family member, like if they just coded and they're a little bit more stable or something, I'll typically start with like, you know, I'm, I'm some version of what do you already know about the situation? Okay, I have some really hard news. I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you again, and then we're going to go see the person, right? And you give them the the understanding this is not good. Here's what here's what's about to happen. If we're actively coding the person and there's there's really no time to even do that sort of pump fake to it, it's it's just some version of saying, this is incredibly hard. I'm going to tell you something that's so hard. Your family member, their heart is stopped. We are working as hard as we can to get it started again. I don't know if they're going to make it. You know, And then depending on what happens, you can sort of take it in a couple directions from there. But that's usually really quickly offered by like, you know, some version of my team is doing everything that is medically possible to get them going. Uh, I, I need to go back there. I, I want to bring you in. Do you want to see what we're doing? And then you sort of see. You mentioned at the, at the onset of this that you didn't, to a certain degree, didn't care about the story. Um, mm -hmm. Right. So... At this point, you're talking to the family. Do you use this opportunity to try and learn more information, or is that kind of irrelevant at this point too? And you just really need to discuss with them. I mean, I I should say that it's not that I don't care about the story. It's just that sure. I don't care about the story in the first couple seconds because whatever the story is doesn't change the output of I need pads on and an IV in this person. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a skill set that that we're very good at at emergency medicine is learning what decisions not to make right it doesn't there's all these decisions about how to treat somebody but but if the final common denominator of all of them is deliver electricity to their heart then none of the decisions you're making matters and just shock the person right which is why you know a lot of folks will advocate for just giving glucose at the beginning of a code it doesn't really matter what their sugar is even if they're in dka you're not going to make them more dead by delivering a little bit of sugar sure if their glucose is normal, you're not going to make them more dead. And if their glucose is zero, then you might actually make them less dead, which is great. Right? So a lot of these sort of decision pathways can be burnt down into uh, actions at the beginning of that. Now, that, that doesn't usually 
hold when you're several rounds in, because at that point you have information, you have data, you've tried things, you've run experiments, and you can sort of get a sense of what's going on in there. So at some point you do care about the story for sure. It'll nudge you in certain directions depending on what's happening. Ideally, I have that story before I'm talking to a family, uh, at least at least a one-liner version of it. And I can you know say some version of what we understand, what we know is that your family member came into this other hospital. They were, they were sick. They might've had a seizure. Their oxygen was really low. Um, here's what we're doing now to solve that. And then if there's questions, it's a great time to ask what, like, you know, what have you seen over the last day or so? And that's a, that's a wonderful thing to task another person to do. Also, you talked about how to like delineate, uh, roles and responsibilities in a room, having somebody talk to that family member and get the entire story is both, is both useful in terms of the actual, just like, you know, um, uh, ultra, like, I don't know, just reductionist, like, can I solve this problem? Ignoring that this is a human, right? Like, yes, more information will sometimes help me solve the problem if there's clues in it, but also for the therapy we're giving the family for the therapeutic effect for the family, Mm -hmm. having them have the ability to tell their story is involving them in this process and helping them understand that, that, you know, we're all in this together. Um, this is an important role. It's not often one that you can do as the leader of the code at the same time. So having a person tasked to that is a really important piece of it. And then obviously at some point you get to the decision about, um, you know, are we going to go or stop or how do we make that decision? You, you, you have talked to the family. Um, ultimately you guys come to this decision that further, further efforts are not going to be successful mm-hmm. and we're going to stop. Okay. So you go in, kind of call, call the code, so to speak, and, uh, and stop things. Now, I think at this point, most of us would say, you know, thank, thank you everybody. And then leave, mm-hmm. um, you know, I got an ICU and I got to get back to whatever. Um, especially I think when you're in this situation where I don't, I don't really know you guys, I don't work with you anyway. So I, I did my job. My job's done. I'm, I'm out. I got to go do my other job. But you mentioned earlier getting into this idea of talking about things after the fact. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle the end of a situation like this, especially if the outcome is not what we would hope for? One of the folks who was a senior resident when I was a junior taught me to do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing this from her and have for my entire career is that uh, at the end of something like that, when a patient has passed, to take a moment of silence and to say as a team um, to this patient, to this person, uh, thank you, sir, for teaching us. I'm sorry all we could do today for you is learn. Sorry all we could do for you today is learn. And to me, that's such an important piece of that puzzle about the human, the humanity of all of this right? Is that it is thank you to the team. It's also the reality that what you did today was learn and that you have this contract with this person to not waste their suffering, right? That you have to learn from it. If you don't learn from it, then you have wasted the suffering that this individual and their family is going through. And to me, that is inexcusable. You cannot waste suffering. Okay. What does that look like, right? That looks like different things at different times, right? So um, it's useful in my mind to draw sort of three levels of debriefing after a thing. 
uh, and this is a little bit rough and we're still working with this structure. So, you know, bear with me on this, but the first is like what you might call from like military terms, like a hot wash, right? An immediate post check, which is literally like, is everybody okay? And like, we're not going to be okay. Okay. But I mean, like, are you like, you know, I was running a code one time and I, um, was trying to decompress the chest and I missed and decompressed my finger with a 14 gauge needle. And so was bleeding all over the place for a lot of it and took my gloves off and I didn't realize how bad it was. It was just sort of like pouring blood on the floor. So, right. Like you need to fix yourself if you're bleeding, right. Did anybody get stuck by a needle? Is anybody hurt? right? Was there anything like that? And then like within that sort of same immediate safety debrief is like, was there a critical life-saving issue with a piece of equipment that we need to fix immediately? Was the, you know, did the portable glide scope break and we absolutely have to fix that before somebody else codes again, right? Is there a shortage? Is the code cart stocked wrong? And that must be fixed before anything else happens. If I'm uh, outside of my normal realm of operation, like I'm the ICU doctor having run to a floor, the, probably the next thing I'm going to do then is call the charge nurse back on the floor and be like, is anybody else coding? Is anybody about to code? Like, am I instantly needed somewhere else? Jeez, we had a situation the other day um, in one of the ERs that I'm at where uh, we were coding a child and... Um, we made the incredibly challenging decision to, to end the code. And uh, a second child came in coding right then. And so there wasn't an opportunity to do anything other than literally everybody sprint to room three and go, right? Like sometimes that's just the reality is that there is no time to do anything else um, in that exact second. But failing that, right? Nobody's bleeding. Nobody's hurt. Nobody's stuck by needles. There's no life-threatening equipment that needs to be changed. Nobody else is instantly coding. Like you probably do have a second to really talk through it with this group. And to me, that is, that is on a personal level, that's honoring the patient that I just worked with, right? That's honoring my commitment to every patient that I see, which is that I'm going to do the best I can for you. And I'm going to set myself and my team up that tomorrow we can do better. And that's, that's like one of the fundamental pillars of medicine to me is being able to play better tomorrow than you can today. Okay, so, so what does that look like, right? Especially if you're not, if you're a, in some sense a guest on the floor, right? Like I might have run that code, but I, I don't, I don't work there. They're not my team. I'm in a different part of that flock of starlings than I was before, right? They don't know me. To me, this is a great opportunity to to subtly nudge the culture of everywhere that you're going to be, right? Is to sit down with folks and be like, everybody, I'm going to clear back to the ICU in just a minute. Before I do. Can I take two moments of everybody's time to talk through what we've learned from this? You know, everybody make sure that they're safe to do this. Anybody who can spare that moment, I'm going to meet you in the hallway here in just a minute. Then there's a ton of art around how to do that, right? On a very fundamental level, it can be some version of thank you for what you've done. I know how hard that is. Jeez, what do we think? What do we think we could do better? And open it up like that. There's more formal ways to do it, right? There's like the plus delta algorithm, what went well, what could do better. There's a process outcome matrix where can we separate how we did as a team, what our process was, what we controlled from the outcome, which is what happened to the patient, which we don't necessarily get the chance to control. Um, can we focus on 
sometimes there's like one specific thing and it kind of stands out like, wow, you know, like we had, so, we had a lot of struggle collectively as a team. I struggled a lot with an airway on this patient. Um, I'd like to take two seconds and think about what we could be doing better for this. I'd really love anybody's ideas because geez, it, this is so important for us for this next case that's coming up. Who sees something that we could have done better? And right away, you're talking about, you're talking about, you know, and Dan Coyle talks about this a lot in like the culture code, but you're already, you're starting with like vulnerability as the leader. You're saying, I did not do perfect. This was not perfect. I would like to do better. You're committing yourself to growth and change. And you're asking uniformly everybody in the room for a sense of what could be going better. That's it's a quick, that's a quick and dirty version of sort of how to do a much more complicated thing like that. Mm-hmm. But I've never found, I have never found a team that flat out says absolutely no to that. That's interesting. Cause I think just for myself, um, I think my hesitancy with something like that would be right. We just mentioned this, it's shift change. The day shift wants to go home. The night shift is like, Hey, I just got here and already I'm instantly behind. Cause I've been coding this guy and I've, I've got, you know, my routine down that I start the night with and it's already thrown off and I don't have time to touchy feely talk about my feelings and what we could do better. But it's interesting to hear you say that, that you've not had that response because I think that maybe helps me be more willing to do that. I think people want to get better, right? We want to get better tomorrow than we are today. I don't know anybody in medicine that you know, would say they don't want to get better at what they're doing. Um, now there's obviously times when it's not the right time to do it, Mm -hmm. right? Like if there really are three other patients and they're about to code, maybe you ask permission to come back tomorrow. Be like, Hey, this was really challenging. We're all super busy right now. Um, can I come back tomorrow? And can we talk about this? Is that okay? My welcome back on the floor for that kind of thing. Probably that's a yes. Right? Even if you get to one or two people, even if you literally get to like one or two people, then all of a sudden you're that ICU person that stuck around to try to make things better mm-hmm. after this thing happened. Oh, okay. So interesting, right? Because normally when we, you know, when we pass the patient on to the ICU, like, you know, kind of frictionful, there, there's a lot of stuff there. Oh, what a challenge that, you know, those people are jerks, right? No offense. I'm, making stuff up here, right? But like those people are jerks. Oh, well, except for that one guy, didn't he stick around after that code to ask us our opinion about how to get better? Right. That did happen. What whatever happened to that? And then you sort of like start subtly changing the culture like this. There there is zero reason, like literally zero reason why we couldn't live as part of a culture of medicine that valued growth and progress and helped each other get better. Why? Why? Like, there's no actual reason to that, except that it's not what we've done. Okay, cool. Well, like, I'd rather start that process. Sometimes that means I stay late. Sometimes that means I don't get to do exactly what I want to do at the end of a shift. And that's hard, right? Like, it's hard. Sometimes you're bleeding literally or figuratively after something like that, and it's not the right time to do it. That's okay. It doesn't have to be forced all of the time. Right. But probably there's a really like huge middle ground between where we could do some of it easily. Right. And and then so what happens? Right. So, so maybe collectively you come up with the idea that like, you know, geez, there were some problems with medication. So maybe, um, you know, maybe it's worth it that the code team carries intubating meds with them. 
all right, well, sure. That's a not unreasonable suggestion. Um, all right. So then like, you know, a month or two passes and like, you've had some meetings about it or something, or somebody's like, yeah, I guess we could do that. You could go back to that team and be like, Hey, you guys remember that thing a couple months ago when this happened? Well, here's what we've done about it. We've actually changed the way that we carry code med. So that's super cool. I appreciate the suggestion. But what, what else do you see? I'm interested in your opinion about it. And this is something that was really hammered into me as a as a junior doctor, and I am so outrageously grateful for the folks that taught me this, which is that you might be the doctor, you might be the leader, you might be running the show, but the room is always smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. You only have one set of eyes and one angle. And if you are ignoring the rest of the room, you are just shooting yourself in the foot. The room is smarter than you. So what does it take for you as the leader to ask the room for what they think. Gee, how do you guys think I could run this code better? And that's gold. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of the things that you're discussing are things that I do with my learners in the sim lab. Um, it's just never occurred to me to do it with myself in a real life situation. Yeah, I, my, my guess is the barriers to that are real, like very real and also probably slightly lower than we think they are. Well, I think this has been very helpful. It's certainly something that I think we deal with all the time, but probably devote very little actual thought to um, how to sort of lead a team and grow and handle difficult environments and stuff like that. Um, Brandon, do you have anything else you want to discuss? I guess one thing I'd like to get your take on is the idea of of managing resources when you're running some sort of resuscitation like this where the resource is your own bandwidth and attention mm. uh, because uh, for us and, and even more so in say the ER or if you're outside of your setting like on a floor it's very possible where the team leader may be sort of the only person there who can do the things that he's doing um, and while you're sinking your teeth into the problems in front of you um, there may be a variety of other problems that arise. For instance, you're trying to run the resuscitation, but also say a procedure needs to be done or one mm-hmm. thing or another. But there's also still the possibility that another patient has a problem or you sure. know, three entirely separate things are going on and you're also the only person who can handle those things. So, I mean, do you have a an approach or a, a framework for trying to kind of triage and manage those sorts of demands where, I mean, ultimately your, your own resources, your mm-hmm. brain and your eyes and your hands are finite. Um, and yet you still can't control the demands that are going to be placed on them. You know, obviously I'm not going to be able to give you a perfectly well-formed triage tool for how to do that. Cause I'm not sure that exists. If anybody, if anybody has that, I'd really love to hear it. Um, but I think that there are a bunch of guiding principles that sort of help us find our, our North Star in that, in that kind of a situation. One of them for me on an internal level, personal level, is the idea that my patients need me to make good decisions, but they also need me to make the right decisions well. Right? So I'm going to say that again. Right? It's not just making decisions correctly, it's making the correct decisions correctly. There are so many decisions that you have to make in some of these circumstances. I do not have the bandwidth to make all of them. I have to make the correct ones. I have to think which decisions will be the ones that I have disproportionate leverage on that I can make a difference in somebody's life. Right. So for example, I don't care what the sugar is at the beginning of the code, just like we talked about. If somebody feeds me a sugar number, 
you know, deciding whether or not to give glucose is a decision that is probably not super necessary. I can almost always get away with just giving sugar. All right. This is something that, um, the, uh, former world champion poker player turned decision-making expert, Annie Duke calls free rolling, right? When the cost benefit analysis is such that, uh, there's almost no downside to one option and there's potential huge upside. Don't make that decision. Just do the thing. Right? So I look for ways to focus my bandwidth where it is most useful. Similar principle to when I'm training jujitsu, right? You have only so much force you can generate. Can you generate that force in a way that is high leverage and move something? Or are you just pushing against everything all at once? The effectiveness of that is wildly different. What that, what that translates into is, can I develop a sense of protocols for the first minute, like a package I can deploy all at once? Right. So that's like, I have a package that is, I walk into a room and somebody's on the floor and I'm going from zero to BLS. I have a package that I've trained, that I've worked on, that I trained my residents on that's BLS to ACLS. Okay. I have a package that's first minute of ACLS and then ACLS rounds two through N, right? Whatever it is, right? Like, can you train those individual things to the point where they cost less energy to do that one skill? And then you're really disciplined about just getting that one thing done there which is why I don't really want to know the person's story at the beginning. I just want to make sure I get to a point where the story can make a difference. And if I do my attention incorrectly, I, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not gonna be able to really help that person the way that I could. So you're, you're like consciously narrowing down both the inputs that you get and also the decisions you're making, uh, so that you're you're not hearing everything and making all the decisions because you know that you don't necessarily have the ability to do that. You're just trying to work with the things that actually matter so that you have some some resources to to do those. Right, which is which is like, you know, we're all used to doing this in medicine in some sense because we understand that airway comes before breathing. Right? There's no point in in maximizing oxygen delivery if there's no ability to get the actual gas into the lungs. Short of ECMO, which is you know, different. But like, we also, you know, like we don't fix a minor cut on the finger if you're hemorrhaging out of the brachial artery. We understand this, mm -hmm. right? But we don't take this to the next step typically, which is to ask, well, what are the most important things in this situation? What are the things that have to happen such that without them, nothing else matters? Pads. How freaking hard is it to get that back pad on somebody sometimes, right? To get that pad on them the right way. I, the, oh man, like this is the thing that drives me crazy that we don't drill this. Like somebody comes in off the EMS ambulance and the pad system that they have does not intersect with our defibrillator. So we have to switch pads, mm -hmm. but we do not train how to switch pads while coding somebody. Wow, what a lost opportunity surprisingly challenging to figure out when you roll them over pulse check. Do you, do you roll them over before you go? I don't know. Right. Like somebody needs to figure that out, but that's the exact type of thing that like, the more I understand that, the more I understand the actual logic of how to deliver my craft, the better I can be at focusing my energy where it's most useful. And it sounds right? like that's part like, of what you're saying also is that these are not necessarily decisions you can make well in, in the heat of the moment because what matters and what order to do them in is not necessarily obvious. So thinking them through ahead of time and maybe even kind of running through it uh, in you know a, a dry run or thinking it through um, is the time to figure those things out and then you can implement them when it happens. Yeah, and like... Yes, absolutely. Figuring them out ahead of time is ideal. Sometimes you run headlong into a wall that you didn't realize was there, 
like the crike kit being empty or something, mm -hmm. right? And then you have to go back afterwards. And that's a great time to build sim, right? Is to build sim around something that broke, run people through it and see what they come up with. Um, a gentleman I talked to on, on my podcast, who's a former bomb squad expert, did this when they were rotating off of an assignment. The first thing they would do is build SIM cases based on the devices they had just diffused and feed that to the folks that were just about to spin up. Saying, so hey, this is a real problem we had. I, I don't know how to solve it. What do you do? Right. And then you can sort of get other people to rerun that situation over and over again in a controlled environment. You can harness that problem set and learn better things from it. That's not wasting the suffering, even though you couldn't necessarily get through the wall for that one person. Um, the other thing, and that, everything that all of that is internal sort of sense, right? The other thing is your team, right? Because what helps me when I'm managing a field of patients and they're sick and complicated is all of the other people that aren't me, all of my team. Right? And just like you have to build yourself ahead of time to be able to perform under pressure and to apply that knowledge, you have to build your team ahead of time. Now, sometimes it doesn't work, right? Like swarm teams are swarm teams, and you don't necessarily get this, the chance to work with everybody before you work with them. But where you can, what can you do to make that team better? So when I, when I was working in um, uh, a shop where I was the only ER doctor there, I would view part of my job every shift would as making the nursing team and the RT team around me better than when I left them. I would want every shift to leave knowing that I had improved that team's ability to provide critical resuscitation care. So maybe that's, we get together for one minute. We're like, Hey, this case we had yesterday was really challenging. Can we just talk about how that might've looked? What do you think we could have done there? Or, Hey folks, can we go over like why I obsessively check to make sure that there's a bougie in the airway cart every morning when I come in? And I'm grumpy about it when there's not one. Why do you think I care about that? Right? Like that sense of every day moving the team a little bit better. I, I certainly didn't know it as the Starling effect when I was doing it, but basically that's what I was doing was nudging my team better. And I viewed part of my job as making everyone around me more capable than they were when they started. And I also expected that from them, right? Like I expected them to tell me when they saw something I could be doing better. And I welcomed that and celebrated it when people talked about it. Because that's the other half is like, I need them to be other eyes and other hands for me. Because the better your team is, the more they can perhaps do on their own and the smoother things go, then the more you can tackle next time. A hundred, a hundred percent, right? Um, you know, I had a, a scribe I was working with. I had a variety of scribes I was working with. And one of the things we worked with with the scribes was, what order do you say the vital signs in? And I was like, do you know why I care about this? I care about it because when I'm under pressure, I can't think very... I don't have a lot of bandwidth and I need the information delivered to me in the low friction way. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, great. So then flash forward, like, you know, I don't know, a couple of months or something. And I was running a code and there was another sick patient that came in and I was, I was able to tell my scribe who was watching, you know, and recording, I need you to go to room three. I need you to come back and tell me the vitals. This person went to room three, came back and gave me the vitals in the correct order, which was wonderful, right? Because then you're sort of like able to use and leverage your team. They learn from it. You learn from it. The whole system gets better for you being there. Along the lines of the team thing and delegating, I was thinking of a story when you were talking, to, when I was a tech in the ER years and years ago, uh, I remember there was a code and I was trying to get up to the chest to do chest compressions. And there mm -hmm. were like three or four residents who were all up there doing chest compressions and sort of blocking the way and fighting for this and that. And and I remember the charge nurse like yelling at them to get out of the way because she was like, mm 
Mm-hmm. Brian is a tech. He literally can't do anything else here but chest compressions. Let him do his job. And mm-hmm. they sort of pushed back with, but we can also do chest compressions. And she said, you need to be doing what only you can be doing. Mm-hmm. Meaning as a tech, all I could do is chest compressions. I couldn't put a line in this patient. I couldn't run the code. I couldn't, you know, we ended up cracking the chest. I can't do that, right? These guys can do all of those things. And we're sitting here wasting their time doing something that could have been delegated to somebody else. And ultimately, I think the reason they were doing it was because it's easy and you can just do it, right? You don't have to think about mm-hmm. it, right? I can do chest compressions. Um, but I've always stuck with that, that idea of do, do focus and do what only you can do who's doing what in any given situation is obviously a function of like the people and the environment, right? So there could be times when they're the only people that know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And they need to they need to have practice on it just like everybody does. But yes, understanding the resources that you have available in the room and making sure that folks are are leveraging their experience goes back to that idea of are you applying force randomly or are you attempting to move a particular piece of the puzzle? All right. Well, I think this has been super helpful. I um I, I folks out there, I can't recommend Dan's book, The Emergency Mind, and his podcast, The Emergency Mind Podcast, uh, enough. These are both fantastic resources, and we'll link to them in the show notes, uh, as well as to um, some of his other stuff. Um, but thanks for joining us, and uh, Dan, thanks for coming on. Oh, I was going to say my my pleasure, and I, I don't know I don't know if I can take the liberty of doing this, but I always end my podcast with with asking folks to issue a challenge. So it. Cool if I issue a challenge? Sure. Yeah, right on. So my challenge is that Starling idea, right? Which was on your next shift, if you're listening to this, what can you do and the six or so closest people around you to make that small, small group 1% better over the course of that shift? Maybe that's asking a simple question. Maybe that's just talking about this idea of what that might look like. But what little nudge can you do to bend the whole culture of your team like that? Thanks so much. That I, That is a good challenge. Um, so everybody, thanks for joining us. And um, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>